morning. A beautiful day, a beautiful weekend. We're so thankful that you've chosen to worship with us today. My name is Matt Watson, and I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, again, we're, we're grateful that you're here. We want to care for you, and we want to serve your family. Um, and if there's anything we can do as a church, as a ministry, to encourage you, to connect you, to pray with you, let me know, because that's, what, that's our heart. That's what we want to do as a ministry. Let's pray, and we'll open up God's Word. Father, we're thankful that we can sing, sing that song, God, that you are the great I am, that basically you're eternal, and that you don't have needs, and that you don't depend on anything. And God, that we get to sing and pray to you, God, because we aren't like that. We aren't. We have needs, wants, desires, deficiencies. And so, God, we're thankful that we're not left here in our struggles, but that we can praise and sing and worship you, God, who is the great I am, who nothing or anyone can stand up against. And so, God, we're thankful for the songs that we can sing. God, now as we turn to your word, God, we, we want to know you better. We want to know you deeper. This great I am, this eternal, beautiful, great God, we want to know you. And that you haven't just left us here, but that you have revealed yourself in your word. That we have the privilege to learning more about you according to the book. And so, God, we pray that you would help us. You'd give us a desire to know you, to know you deeper. And, God, as we cover a pretty challenging story this morning, God, we pray that you'd give us hope, hope in our own struggles relationally, that you'd give us courage and strength to do the right thing. God, that we would learn from this story from, from so long ago. We ask your Holy Spirit to guide us, to convict us, to encourage us, to open up our ears to hear this morning. It's in your name that we pray, God. Amen. So we're going to be spending a significant time going through a story here in 2 Samuel, and so we're going to be reading a lot of different passages. Nobody ever grabs a Bible in the back, but you are free to grab a Bible in the back because we are covering a lot of Scripture this morning. I helped you out maybe by putting an insert in the bulletin. Um, it's not going to be on the screen, but I want you to follow along as we're covering seven, eight chapters in 2 Samuel. It's okay. We're going to fly through this. Last week was a pretty moving scene that we ended in. If you remember with David, we've been focusing on the king who we look at and we look up to, this great man of God who pursued him with all of his heart. And then finally last week we realized that David isn't all great. There was nothing great about David last week. I mean, it was ugly. And David finds himself in this pile of sin with lying and deception, adultery and murder. And David is confronted by Nathan in this beautiful, 
gentle yet strong way where Nathan, through the story that he shares with him, basically says to him, you are the man in the story that I'm talking about. And he says that near the end of him confronting him. And that line, you are the man. The man in the story, David, that you get so angry about. You are that same person. That same man, David, that you want to die because of what he's done to the sheep. You are that person. And David breaks down. He breaks down. And he writes so many psalms on this, on this episode right here. Psalm 51. Against you and you only have I sinned. David writes. And then, the, then God follows up in 2 Samuel 12, 13. And he says, I have put away your sin. I've put your sin away. Not like when we put things away. Maybe we intend to go find it later if we remember where we put it. When God puts something away, he's saying, it's gone for good. Like, I will not go back to that. And God tells David, I am giving you something you don't deserve. I'm giving you mercy. I'm giving you mercy and grace. I'm putting your sin away. And it's this beautiful picture of where David has repented and found God's forgiveness. But as you continue in the story of 2 Samuel, you quickly see that even though there's forgiveness with God between David and God, that God has put his sin away, that there's still this vertical, okay, this kind of side-by-side consequence that David has to face. There's forgiveness, right? He's, He's confessed and he's repented. But that does not mean that this horizontal, kind of this, like the way you live your life, the people you interact with, it doesn't mean that David doesn't still have to face the consequences of what he's done. And then so God says to David, you look at the first passage on your printout there, 2 Samuel 12, 9 through 11. David, or God's just basically saying to David, you're forgiven, but you're going to have to live with publicly in your life what you've done to others. Verse 9, he says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, okay, here comes the consequence. The sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and you've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And thus says the Lord, behold, I'll raise up evil against you out of your own house. I'll take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of, his, of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Though you are ultimately forgiven, you will reap what you have sown. You have brought the sword out, David, to deal with your situation. Like you used the sword to fix what God wanted to fix for you. And now he's saying, now you have to learn with the fact that you have taught people to deal with their situations by taking out the sword. You've dealt with women and marriage 
foolishly. Foolishly. And now you have taught the people who are under you how to treat women. And you will have to live with the lessons that you've taught them. You have murdered David. Remember last week. Killed other men outside of just Uriah. He was so trapped and deceived in his sin. that it cost many men their lives. Not just Uriah, but all the men around Uriah were killed. And the picture of of these men not coming home and these sons and daughters not having their fathers, these wives who've lost their husbands because David's sin. And what God is saying here is saying, he's saying, you are going to have to live with loss. And so the famous or the consequence that's probably most well known is the loss of his son with Bathsheba. Again, he's saying, this is what you've created with your sin. And though there's forgiveness, you have to live in the wake of your sin. It's kind of like an aftershock, an earthquake, the power of an earthquake. But what some scientists will say is that the aftershocks can last days or months, years, literally years after that, what they call is the main shock. This tremor that continues because of the mess you've made. There's still, you can still feel the aftershock of an earthquake. And so God says, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to leave you in the consequence of sin. And so this is really the one point that we're discussing this morning. Forgiven sin still has relational consequences. Respond in holiness, not hatred in grace and not guilt. We're going to see this sets us up for the next six chapters that David's sin is going to start impacting and infecting his family. And we see consequences to it, but then we see really bad ways of responding to consequences of sin, of relational dysfunction, family dysfunction. We see really bad ways with David's sons, with David himself, poor ways of handling dysfunction and struggle. And so we're going to learn to do the opposite of what they've done. But again, similar to last week, this is not a pleasant section of scriptures. No one wins. No one does what is right. Sin continues to destroy. Bad situations, unfortunate situations create more sin. And we're going to walk through that with a really encouraging message this morning. Let's start with Amnon, 2 Samuel 13. Verse 11. We're going to skip halfway through the story. I'll cover it in a couple of minutes, the beginning part. Well, I'll, I'll basically talk about it first, I guess. So Tamar, David's daughter, Amnon, David's son, Amnon really loves his sister in an unbiblical, disgusting, despicable way. And so Tamar, Amnon, in this very heinous way, crafts this plan where he's going to be sick so that his sister can come and care for him. And this is where we pick up. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me. 
For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where would I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he'll not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. Being stronger than she, he violated her and he lay with her. And then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that she, the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this is wrong and sending me away is greater than the other that you've done to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him. He said, put this woman out of my presence. Bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put, put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head, tore the long robe that she wore. She laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. In verse 20. And as her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. And when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he violated his sister Tamar. What an awful story. What a disgusting story story as you read and you think about this awful thing that has happened. This brother overpowering, raping his sister. And what's crazy as you read this story in light of this kind of this main point that we're focusing on is that Amnon looks like his father. He's acting like his father. The Watsons, the Watson boys, or at least I am notorious, not notorious, that's negative. We, I'm known for having a vein, maybe the vein is, I think I've talked about the vein before, the vein that shows on my forehead in a couple of different situations. If something is really funny, or if I'm really upset about something, the vein will pop up on my forehead. And so if, if we're laughing about something, If I'm laughing about something with you and you don't see the vein on my forehead, it's not a real laugh. (laughs) I wouldn't do that. Um, Or if if you're talking to me, you're complaining about something, something, and and I'm just sitting there saying, you see, Um, I'm probably upset about something. The other day, we were watching our kids play in in the backyard, and I'm watching our three, three. It's not a great number when they're trying to all play with each other. And I'm seeing Truman get left out of, of a game that, that Caroline and Jack are playing. And he, I see him, okay, my little mini me, getting frustrated. As I'm sitting there on my porch watching him, I see down there all of a sudden on his forehead comes a little vein pop out. I'm like, oh boy, I better get up and intervene right now. Because my son is like me. Amnon looks like David. Look at how he talks to Tamar. Get this woman out of my presence. Who does that sound like? David inquiring who Bathsheba was. Who is that woman? The texts are lined up in such a way that it's supposed to remind us 
of a father and son relationship. David, remember when he, he inquired who Bathsheba was, it ma- makes no sense why David would continue to go after Bathsheba. She is your friend's your friend who risked his life for you, um, it's his wife. Like, don't be foolish, David. Tamar is the sister. Okay? Again, two situations that make, it makes no sense for them to go after. But in both stories, you see this kind of this focused, like nothing's going to keep me from getting what I wanted. Also, just thinking about this passage is where's David? Like, where's David in this passage that we just read? David, in this, the couple verses beforehand, tells his daughter Tamar, go take care of your brother while he's sick. But it's interesting that David doesn't show back up in the text until that very last verse that I read. David was really angry. And so I'm really just talking about a silence here, but... You have to think, where has David been? What has David been doing? He's really angry. Is that all, David? Why aren't you confronting your son? Why aren't you doing something about this situation? And Absalom clearly is upset by this, telling his sister to keep it quiet because he wants to hatch a plan to kill. But you just have to think, You know, we don't know all the details of the story, but you think of Tamar. Think of Tamar. What is Tamar thinking? You get a picture of her desolation, ripping her dress. She lived a desolate woman in her brother's house. You just got to be thinking. I wonder if she was thinking about her dad, David. Same man that slayed thousands and thousands of men who was a valiant warrior, this well-known king, whose strategy, his godliness, and now where is my dad? Like, where is he? He's really angry at the end of the text, but what was he doing about the situation? Why has he left me? And not surprisingly, Absalom takes the situation into his own hands. 2 Samuel 13, 28 and 29, Absalom decides he's going to kill his brother. He organizes a party, a sheep-shearing party. Doesn't that sound fun? To lure his brother. Let's celebrate that way on Monday. And so he lures his brother to this party. And look at verses 28 and 29 of 13. And tell me who it sounds like. Absalom commanded his servants, Mark, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you, be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom, as, as he commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, each mounted his mule, and they fled. Who does that sound like? That's David. Use alcohol to try to get what you want in somebody else. And then let's hire someone who's underneath you to do the work that you want to be done. Sounds just like David. (laughs) 
And then after this story, Absalom gets out of town. The text tells us that he goes to a, a, a nearby area where he has family for three years. Okay, and again, David, as you read this story, David just comes off passive. Like David's not doing anything about the situation. He's not confronting. He's not seeking reconciliation. David is just kind of floating through this entire story. And so when his son leaves, the text makes it sound like David knows where he is. Because Joab knows where he is. But David isn't doing anything. And so Joab concocts a plan to send somebody to confront David, similar to the Nathan situation, to confront him, to reconcile with his son. And so he sends this prophet dressed up. And this prophet who's dressed up comes to him and gives David a story. He said, David, I need you to help me with this story. My two sons were fighting in the field and one killed the other. Two sons in a field one killed the other, and now my family wants to kill the other one. And this prophet who's acting basically says, I don't want this to happen because he's, he's my only son. He's my only son. David, won't you have mercy on my family? In essence, what she is saying to David is, God showed you mercy, David, in that you murdered and you killed and you hurt. Can you please show mercy now in this situation? Please offer mercy in the same way that God gave you mercy, David. Give Absalom mercy. That's what Joab is trying to have happen here. Don't hurt or kill your son. And so David responds in verse 21 of 14. You see this sort of half-hearted, this half-hearted response. King says to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Go bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face on the, on the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord and the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose, went to Geshur, and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He's not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. It's like, bring me my son, but I don't want to see him. Again, you just have to think, what is Absalom feeling in this moment? What is he thinking? What is he, how is he feeling? David says, come, but I'm going to put you under house arrest. Like, I'm not going to even look at you. And Absalom starts to get a little desperate. He wants to reconcile with his father, either reconcile or receive judgment. This idea of him just kind of living in this house with no resolution isn't cutting it for Absalom. And so Absalom decides it's time to get some attention. Now, I don't know what your kids do when you're on your phone and they want to get your attention. They want, to do, they want you to look at them. Hopefully, it's not what Absalom does. Okay, Absalom lights Joab's field on fire. Okay, if your kids have gotten to that, we can talk after the service. An unhealthy way to get attention. But that's what Absalom does. He wants to talk to Joab because he wants to make this right with his dad. 
And Joab comes to him and says, let's go see the king. And you have this scene where, where finally, after years of this kind of separation, Absalom and David are in the same room together. And let me find where this is. This is 14, 28 through 33. Let's skip down to verse 32. Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I send word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Gesher? It'd be better for me to be there still. Now therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there's guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him. He summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and he bowed himself on his face. He bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Okay, so you see something happen here. Okay, Absalom finally gets into the presence of his father. But there's just not a lot of detail, which, which lends itself to say that nothing really happened. Absalom bows before his father. His father kisses him, but there is no true reconciliation. You don't see them talking about Tamar, you don't see them, you don't see the same kind of brokenness and repentance that you saw in David when he was confronted by Nathan. And what the text is leaning towards is that nothing really happened. That true reconciliation wasn't made. And at this point in the story, Absalom is done. Like he's gotten what he's wanted. He's no longer quarantined. He's ready to take the king's seat for himself. And so that's what he does, 15 through 18 of 2 Samuel. He's going after David to usurp the throne. And so he gets these symbols of power all around him, chariots and people, situations where he can show his wisdom. And for years, he uses his looks, he uses his wisdom to slowly plant this idea in, the, in their minds that he is worthy to be the king. And years he does this. Years just lying and slowly deceiving people until finally he's got enough people, enough people following him that he feels like he can overtake David. And so he hatches this plan where he's going to leave for this, this worship service or to, to make a sacrifice. And David says, you can go. And, it's, and when he comes back, he brings all these men to overthrow David. Verse 2 Samuel 16, 15 through 16. Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem. And Ahithophel with him, and Hushai the archite. David turned came to Absalom. Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king. Long live the king. So, da- so Absalom has come back into the kingdom. David has already gotten word of what his son is up to. And what does David do? He runs for it. He runs. He leaves. He knows that his son has done enough to overthrow him as king. And Absalom marches into Jerusalem, an empty Jerusalem. And he looks to his advisors and he says, now what do I do? Like, how do I prove myself to the people? And his, his, his advisor gives him an idea in verse 20. He says, give your counsel, what shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines whom he has left to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. 
So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went to his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. What a low place. I mean, what a low place. The same temple. The same spot that David saw Bathsheba is the same spot that his son is violating more women. Again, the text screams this through the whole story. David's sons look a lot like David. They are sinning like their father. And that this mess that David has created, that they're responding to the mess of relational dysfunction and sin. They're responding to this unfortunate situation, these awful situations, and they respond to it in more sin, causing more dysfunction and more consequences. And the story ends where David finally gets enough men to go back and, and to regain the throne. And this battle between David and Absalom, and Absalom famously dies by having his head stuck in a tree, riding along with his long flocks, locks of hair, flocks of hair, Long locks of hair. He gets stuck in a tree. And, and David had already said, don't hurt my son. Like, I know we're going to fight, but don't hurt my son. But Joab doesn't care. Joab throws a spear, three spears through him. And this awful full circle scene that ends in more death and tragedy. And then in verse chapter 18, 31 through 33, you get the report that David gets when he finds out his son has died. And this will be the end of the story. It says, Behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, it is, well with, is it well with the young man Absalom? The Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved, and he went up to the chamber over the gate, and he wept. And as he wept, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I I had died instead of you. O Absalom, my son, my son. What tragedy. Tragedy. To see The circle of this story, the sin and the ripple effect of David's sin impact so many people to where his son finally has died. And so for us, as we think about relational consequences because of our sin, how do we respond to dysfunction in relationships? Because we all have dysfunctional relationships in our families, in our lives, in our relationships with others. And we look at a story like this and we say, we can't do what they've done. Look at Absalom and Abnon. They had so much hate in them. They, they inherit this situation. And from the beginning, you just see these sinful, strong feelings where Amnon couldn't constrain himself. He just went after whatever he wanted. Absalom couldn't trust his father, couldn't be patient. And for us, it's like, listen, we're going to find ourselves in dysfunctional relationships. Maybe it's caused by sin from previous generations, maybe from your parents, whoever it is. We're going to find us in dysfunction. And what this is saying to us is don't respond the way they've responded. Don't contribute 
to the sinking sand that you find yourself in. Respond in love. Respond in mercy. Respond in forgiveness. If we respond with more sin to the dysfunction in our lives, with more anger and more bitterness, it causes more dysfunction. And you look at how David responds to this in this whole story. He's full of guilt. How did David respond to the dysfunction? He didn't. He didn't confront anyone. He didn't deal with it. When he dealt with it, he brought his son and he just left him in his own house. There's a story in chapter 16 of a guy that's following David as he's, as he's fleeing. I wish we could, we could read it, but the guy's throwing pebbles at David. Kind of, it's a weird part of this story where he's just throwing rocks at David. David's like, ugh, it's annoying. Like, can I do something about that? And they're like, kill the man, do something. And David's like, no, no, no. And the man, as he's throwing pebbles at David, he says, you are cursed by God. And David, you have David respond by saying, well, yeah, I think God probably just sent him to tell me that. You see this guilty man who's feeling like, look at all that I've done in my past. Look at how I, how I mess this up with Bathsheba and Uriah and all the men that died. And you can just see David, picture him, completely overwhelmed in his guilt. How can I talk to my son about how he treated his sister when look at what I did to Bathsheba? How can I confront Absalom on murder when that's the same thing I did? You see this picture of this king who's, who just can't handle the situation. When clearly, he's forgotten that first word that, that God spoke to him. Hey, David, I put your sin away. Yeah, you messed up, but your sin is gone. Respond to this messed up situation, not with just this guilt, well, I can't do anything because I have messed up. Instead, respond by understanding my grace for you. Like respond, tell your sons that you are a mess up. Yeah, and you have done awful things, but it's because of God's grace that you can still have a relationship. Confront them in his grace. How do we respond to relational dysfunction? Do we get mad and angry and contribute to the, to the swirl? Or do we say, you know what, I'm going to stop this. Like it feels right to be bitter or to be angry but I'm going to stop this. I'm going to dig my feet down and I'm going to respond in holiness. And then I just, I close with this. David is not our great king. David is clearly not our great king. He was a man after God's heart, own heart. Right, he does, he does so much that says, I love you, God, and I will follow you with everything. But he certainly failed in so many ways. But what's also interesting is that we all have pieces of our lives that are awfully like Absalom. We all are like Absalom in our rebellion, taking something from God that's not ours, publicly humiliating God with how we live. All of us are similar to Absalom in ways, some ways. But here's what's so beautiful about the story that we get to live in, is that Jesus was a better David. Jesus was a better David. That last line that we read in the story, 
when David is just broken with grief and he says, my son, my son, if only I could have been the one to die but for you. Here's what Jesus says. He says, I, we're like Absalom. And you know what Jesus says? He says, I will die for you. I have died for you. I am doing what David couldn't do for his son. I am doing it for you. Where David shunned his son when he finally came back to Jerusalem. Jesus embraces us when we come back to him. The story of the prodigal son, how does the father respond? The son who has just taken and abused all the resources that were given to him. And he comes back, does the father say, nope, I need you to go to your room. Like, we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks, but you're punished right now. No, he embraces his son. And that's how Jesus has treated us. Jesus is the better David. He is the better king. What a message for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that there is hope even in dysfunction. Hope. That even though that there are consequences for sin, that when we follow and when we know you, we know that there's a bigger story still being written. Help us, Father, to trust to live and to walk with you even in the dysfunction of relationships that we have today. Give us courage to do the right thing. Help us, Father, to stick our feet in the sand and to say we will contribute no longer to the dysfunction. We will not let our feelings or our desires contribute to the mess that, is, that we are a part of. And God, may we also not be defined by our guilt. This, this idea that we are what we've done in our past. But God, may we trust you that in you, we have a new name. We have a new story. So God, help us to contribute to the dysfunction by offering righteousness and holiness and grace. And God, we're thankful for your son, Jesus Christ who is the better David, who could do what David couldn't do. In grief, when David said, my son, my son, your son says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so God, we come and we worship you, God, that you are our great king, and it's not David, that you came to get us and rescue us from our mess, you died and you forgave us and you give us new hope, even though life is really hard. That there is hope and meaning when you're our king. And so God, we worship that king now. It's in his name. Amen.